Ah, so glad to get out of that dang time travel machine. Where'd you go? I went back to the 80s to grab some of that good, good sports merch from my favorite defunct franchises. I spent my life savings on that machine. You bought a time travel machine to buy sports merchandise? Yeah, gladly. You know you could have gone to 503 Sports, right? The the website? Uh, yeah, no, I didn't think of that at all. Yeah, they sell all sorts of throwback sports merch from leagues like the World Football League, XFL, UFL, and the Arena Football League, several others. Uh, oh, shoot. Yeah, they sell hats, shirts, even custom jerseys from all sorts of vintage sports teams. Oh, man, I spent, like, a lot of money on that time travel machine. Well, look, listeners of AFL Rewind get 10% off their first order by using the promo code ARENAFAN at checkout. That might help you out. Yeah, it does. Go on over to 503-sports.com and, and get your merch today. Do you know anyone who wants to buy, like, a overpriced time travel machine? No, no, sorry, I, I don't. Welcome to AFL Rewind, a look back at all things arena football, sponsored by Phenom Elite. I'm your host, Tim Capper. Depending on which side of the fence that you're sitting on, unions in sports can easily be a love-hate relationship. Um, obviously, when it comes to unions, they all they usually all they want is the best for the players, making sure that they have safety, make sure they have security, and make sure that they feel that they're getting paid what is necessary. When it comes to unions and negotiating through their different collective bargaining agreement, it can be very frustrating for fans. Um, whether it be, especially in the Arena Football League's situation, where the unions can easily cause a delay in the season, the unions can cause cancellations, the unions can cause not necessarily forfeits, but it's happened before. And, you know, as I said, fans can easily love or hate the union. But they are a very integral part of sports today. Well, this episode, we're going to be speaking with a gentleman who some could consider the very first union leader. And when I say union, I put union in quotation marks because what you as a fan or has has a story and need to remember is that the Arena Football League did not officially unionize until the late 1990s. And that's where the whole story and stories began when it came to leagues going to fold, leagues not going to fold, you know, this, that, and the other. There have been many men who have been the face of the unions in the Arena Football League for, you know, ever since their inception. But as I mentioned just before, is that this gentleman we're going to be speaking with, he did everything as a quote-unquote union leader, even though there was no union at the time. So I hope you enjoy this episode as we speak with Raymond Asher. And for this episode of the podcast, um, we have a gentleman we're going to be speaking with who, and I said this to him before we came on air, it's how to describe him because everybody remembers the, the, you know, the AFLPA and the AFLPU and all the, all the names that were associated with that. This gentleman was an official, unofficial players helper but not it wasn't part of an association, so it was kind of a players' association by himself. We'll get in more context before the PA and the PU actually came about in the late 1990s. On the line with us now is uh, Raymond Absher. Hey, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I want to find out from you, Raymond. Um, 
how now I know you were in the Chicago area, but how specifically did you learn about the Arena Football League and start your career as as it went? I joke around saying by 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 be, by becoming a troublemaker to certain people in the league. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was a a rookie lawyer back in 1986, and we happened to see an ad in the paper for the test game, if I remember correctly, um, and thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And, and then I I don't recall exactly when thereafter, but saw an ad for the Chicago bruisers. And uh, I was working for a a more senior attorney at the time. And uh, he and I were both sports enthusiasts and we thought that sounded neat and thought we would go. And uh, the bruisers had, had a picnic for season ticket holders and I just kind of fell into it right there. I was more or less the same age as a lot of the players. I I struck up a friendship with two guys on the bruisers at that time. And that friendship, uh, lasted, uh, has lasted, uh, till today. Uh, unfortunately one of them recently passed, but, uh, I happened to meet those two guys. We were more or less the same age and, uh, one of them got hurt and it all snowballed from there. Wow. So, it, it, just like a lot of people who follow the league or became involved in the league, it was just by, I guess we could say, a circumstance that you just happened to, to find the league itself? No question about it. I, I was a, uh, a frustrated athlete. I missed being involved in sports. Um, and I, I, I didn't start out with any type of an agenda mm-hmm. of representing players or being involved. It just happened. Yeah. Uh, I met Richard Rogers. I met Osei Lewis. We became very good friends. And uh, I never, never in a million years did I imagine that I would wind up representing so many ballplayers. Uh, never, never anticipated that and just fell into it. So you weren't, you weren't, a, were you, did you end up becoming a sports agent of some sort or, or just a player representative? Well, at, at the time I was a workers' compensation attorney. Okay. And, and I've been a workers' compensation attorney ever since. So over my 35-year career, that's what I've done. Uh, it became somewhat of a, uh, a natural evolution to become a certified agent with the NFLPA, mm-hmm. which I did. Uh, and, and I spoke at one of the NFLPA uh, seminars many years ago. Uh, about workers' compensation issues, but I, I really wasn't so eager to be an agent. Okay, um, uh, that that wasn't my agenda, and uh, I did a little bit of agent work, but not a lot. Most of what I've done, as far as athletes go, is representing them for injuries. I've had some baseball players, hockey players, football players. Uh, not for injuries, I've represented a few pro wrestlers. Uh, <laughs> And I know everybody in roller derby. Oh wow, so, that's cool. Uh, that's neat. So it's uh, it's been an interesting life. Um, what people need to remember too, at this time when the league first began, uh, obviously there was no players' association, and I've and you know I've heard of players who've gotten hurt, you know, earlier in their career, especially early in the league's history. Also, the and if you go back to some of the some of the interviews that we've had recently uh, in this historical series, everybody knows when it comes what. It, when it comes to workman's comp and how I think you can talk to me on this too, on, on how the league would try to move their office from city to city to try to sort of avoid certain types of workman's compensation. I'll give an example, which you were around during was, you know, when the Albany Firebirds 
happened to ha- house their head offices over in Vermont rather than in Albany. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it, it's a very interesting f- and fine line when it comes to I'm sure of what you did because right. well, you know it the, nope there was no PA there was no PU at the time and these players needed to be you know needed to have some sort of representation and you were it. Well, there was uh, at at the time we didn't really have a you know it sounds like you're describing somewhat of a shell game with with uh, corporate entities uh, moving from place to place to mm-hmm. avoid liabilities. That's not really the way it was in the beginning. Okay. Uh, you know, back in 1987, when Arena had its its first year, uh, if I remember correctly, Marty Mordenweg might have been the first guy to get hurt, and uh, and Marty did that was it for Marty. He was done in the arena football league. Uh, and of course his team went on to win the, the first arena bowl, the Denver dynamite. Mm-hmm. But, uh, back then we had the arena football league had insurance. Um, and, and we really didn't have any problems in 1987. Uh, the problems started in 1988 and they were pretty significant problems. Uh, and eventually I'll, I'll, I'll get to the Brian Berge story, which I think is a fascinating story sure. and, and really, uh, almost a metaphor for a lot of the problems that we had in arena football in its infancy. Um, in 1988, um, there were, there were some ownership issues. Um, I, I don't remember the gentleman's name in, in California, but 88, we, we had the LA Cobras come into the league. Uh, the, the, the league had expanded. The players all of a sudden, uh, were making a thousand dollars a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the stakes had increased dramatically. And at the beginning of the season, we had uh, the Arena Football League was insured by Crum and Forster Insurance. And I want to say that lasted approximately a third to a half of the season. And then something happened. Mm -hmm. I never found out what that something was. I don't know if Crum and Forster dropped Arena Football. I don't know if there was a failure to pay a premium. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but this much I do know. Crum and Forster stopped providing coverage to arena football and arena football continued to play. And that's where some of the problems began. They, they had two weeks of games where there was no insurance. Uh, and somebody in California got hurt and blew out their ACL during those two weeks. Uh, and, and we had a heck of a time getting compensation and getting medical bills paid for that young man. But, uh, the, the players started coming to me when they were getting hurt because of insurance issues. Right. And, uh, for the last half of the 1988 season, Hartford insurance was providing coverage. So uh, you're certainly familiar with the notion of, of guys hurting their knees, getting mm-hmm. their knees aspirated and then going back into the game. Yeah. So we had situations in 1988 where a player might hurt their knee early in the season when Crum and Forster provided coverage have their knee aspirated, keep playing, and then go get their arthroscopy at the end of the season. That was not an unfamiliar scenario. And so what we had then was Crum and Forster refusing to pay for the surgery because the player kept playing. Mm. Even though their knee had been aspirated, there was clearly an injury early in the season, but the player kept playing. So in the mind of Crum and Forster and their insurance representatives, the players had new injuries while arena football was no longer insured by Crum and Forster. So Hartford insurance looked at it and said, well, we're not paying for this. This is on Crum and Forster. Right. 
So we really had a situation where two insurance carriers were pointing the finger at one another and the players were not getting paid and not getting their medical bills paid. So this was a real problem. Uh, and, and even worse, if, if the player got hurt in that two-week time frame where there was no insurance whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So uh, back then in 1988, had I known this was going on behind the scenes, I would have contacted players and told them not to play. You have no business working for an employer who does not have workers' compensation insurance. Right. It's just too dangerous. And, and of course, arena football back then was the Ironman game. So the guys are going uh, both offense and defense. They're always on turf. The field is surrounded by boards, except in 87. And uh, I can't remember in 88 when, when, we, when they changed it and, and Jim brought the boards in. But uh, and we did have one guy break his neck going headfirst into the boards back in 88. But we, we, we had a significant problem here because the guys weren't getting taken care of. Uh, and then we had a similar scenario in 1989 where there was an insurance issue and I told players not to play and we got into a bit of a schmoz with the league mm-hmm. as to whether there was going to be a work stoppage. Um, but we had this problem in 1988 and and we spent a lot of time uh, after the 1988 season speaking with, with the arena football officials to try to ensure that we wouldn't have this problem again the following year. Right. But, of course, the following year was an anomaly all its own. Yeah, the Barnstorming uh, League. Uh, the, year. The, the, yeah. the Barnstorming League. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can remember on the bus, Reggie Smith would be uh, humming the uh, the Sanford and Son theme because in, in his mind it was like being on the, on the uh, pickup truck going from town to town. That's great. Um, so uh, the 89 season was, uh, from beginning to end, uh, just a real interesting time, and, and I can remember Jim talking about how uh, how he his credit cards were maxed out. Mm-hmm. I mean, the league was really doing everything it could to to survive. Uh, and one of the things that they did to survive, of course, was to cut their overhead. Right. So the players went from making a thousand dollars a week base pay to three hundred and fifty dollars a week. Whoa. Yes, and. Uh, and when you're getting your, yeah, your salary not, cut by 70 percent. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not a recipe for, uh, for, for happy employees. Um, uh, the, the training camp was in Rensselaer, Indiana at uh, St. Joe's College, where the Bears used to have their mm-hmm. training camp many years ago, back in the days of George Alice yeah. and Abe Gibran. And, so, uh, and the guys didn't always know what was going on. Some players came to Rensselaer without knowing what they were going to be paid uh, Billy Stone, who was the 1987 Ironman, came to Rensselaer and was there a couple days and went home. Decided that this is not for me. Right. Uh, but most of the guys didn't have, I don't want to say they didn't have Billy's common sense, but as, as much as Billy and all the guys loved the game of football, uh, Bill knew that football was not going to be his, uh, his livelihood forever. Right. And, uh, and he wasn't going to put himself in that position. So, so we have the guys coming to Rensselaer in 1989, and that's really the, 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 the beginning of the Brian Berge saga, okay. uh, if you'd like me to go into it. Oh, I, I want to uh, get you there. Well, you're mentioning about 89 because I did not know where they, had, where they had actually held training camps. So it was like a hub city where all the players would come in and they would be assigned to the different teams because back then for 89, I think it was – it was either five or six teams that, that, that were only in the league that year. So, Well, in, in 89, 
the league flew the guys into Chicago. Okay. And then they bust them to the office in Desplaines. The guys were in Desplaines for a while, not very long. And then they got on a bus and went to Rensselaer, Indiana. <laughs> and and that's where training camp was. Right. Uh, nobody had been assigned to a team yet. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. All the guys had physicals out in Indiana with uh, Chad Prodromos, who was the league medical director. And I can't recall if at the time, if, if Chad might have had an interest in the league. I think back in 87 he did. I don't recall by 89. And I could be wrong about that. But mm-hmm. but Chad was the uh, the team doctor for the Bruisers, and, and he held the position in 89 of being the league medical director. Okay. And one of his employees during the offseason in his orthopedic practice was Phil Graham, who was the Chicago Bruisers trainer. Okay. And so Phil held the title of head athletic trainer back in 89, uh, assisting Chad when everybody was in camp in Rensselaer. So we, uh, so with Brian, uh, Brian played college ball at uh, UTC, uh, the University of Tennessee, Chattanooga. Right. Uh, he and, uh, and, and he knew about arena football from one of his college teammates, Brent Johnson, who was a great lineman for the Chicago Bruisers. Uh, so the league found out about Brian, and the league gives Brian a phone call in Chattanooga, Tennessee, mm-hmm. and says, why don't you come play? And Brian is from a suburb of Atlanta. The league sends Brian a plane ticket, and Brian flies from Atlanta to Chicago. He gets bussed from the from O'Hare Airport to Des Plaines, which is just outside of Chicago, just right. a couple, really a couple of minutes from the airport. Spends uh, has a cup of coffee or so at the league office, and then gets on a bus with other guys to Rensselaer. And so we're going to come back to to this sure. um, to this chronology because we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit about how a contract is formed, right? Uh, because a contract can be both written and verbal, mm-hmm. and a written, uh, or rather, a, a, an offer can be accepted sometimes by performance. Okay. And this would eventually become an issue as to when Brian became contracted to the Arena Football League. Okay. Let me ask you one question, by the way. Sure. Do you, do you happen to know specifically? First, I want to go back real quickly. When the league ended up not having any uh, any insurance at all. Why do you think that Foster and the group did not tell anybody, or were they just trying to keep it as hush-hush as possible before they were able to get Hartford in? In all fairness to Jim, I don't know that he knew. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I've never had a bone to pick with Jim. I like Jim, and I always loved the game. Uh, I, I was a fan first. Right. Uh, always loved the game, and uh, and never saw my role as being either consciously or unconsciously detrimental to arena football. I thought I was helping them. I thought I was helping everybody. But um, that might have been naive to think that I'd be perceived that way. But I don't know that Jim knew. I don't know that Mark Higley knew. Um, I I think they were stretched pretty thin. I think they had a handful of people trying to do an awful lot. Okay, and uh, so I, I I wouldn't point my finger at anybody. I, I I don't have that knowledge. Right. All I know is that it happened. Okay. And uh, when it came to '89, why Rensselaer? Why Indiana? Well, uh, well, the Rensselaer facility, St. Joseph's College, was known in the Chicago land area because the Bears, the Chicago Bears, used to have their training camp out there many many years ago. Right. Um, 
so so that was known. My guess is that it was really inexpensive. There were dorms there to put the players in, uh, and uh, which is something that the Bruisers did the year before. The Bruisers uh, rented out the old George Williams College, which was no longer in existence, and, wow. and they had so they had dormitories to put the players in and a place to practice. Um, so Rensselaer had football fields, it had dormitories, it had a cafeteria, um, and, and you had a lot of guys there. Right. Uh, I, I don't recall exactly how many teams there were back then, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you, 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 there must've been several hundred people on, on the campus, um, uh, for this endeavor. So they needed to have a place to practice. They needed to be able to practice with each other. Okay. Uh, I, I think we've seen over the years that. Uh, not having preseason play makes for poor arena football. I agree. Uh, I agree. And uh, and, that, and that's always a two-edged sword with the league. But um, so my guess is that it was purely economics. That's why they went to Indiana. I don't think they went to Indiana because they wanted to avoid Illinois. I think my guess is that it was just uh, a good deal. Okay, so it, it, I was thinking when because when I asked you, I was like, "Do you think it had maybe it had something to do with workman's comp, or it had to do with insurance itself?" But uh, but from I, what you're no, what you're I, saying, I, probably didn't. No, I don't think so at all. I okay. don't think so at all. I think that would have been uh, just just pure pure luck. Okay. All right. Okay. Yep. Um, let, let, you know what? Let's because I know you you and I talked about the whole contract thing before in the past, and, and we want to make sure that we tell the story because, as you said, it's, it's it's a very integral part of the early league itself, and especially this this particular player too. So let, let let's talk about this gentleman who they they're trying to court to play in the Arena Football League. Okay, so uh, Brian came with a bad knee. Brian had an ACL problem when he played at UTC. And when he arrives in Rensselaer, like all the other players, he is given a pre-employment physical, and that's done by Prodromus. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm laughing because in, in 1987, during the telecast of the Arena Bowl mm-hmm. uh, on ESPN, they, ta- they, they called Dr. Prodromos Dr. Chromodomus. <laughs> and, uh, and, oh, and, and, and I'm obviously follically impaired as well. So, uh, I've, I've always remembered that. And I may have been the only one who ever caught it, uh, when they said it, but, uh, in any event, um, uh, Chad did, uh, the physical and, and I would of course eventually get the medical records Right. and, and, the, and the records say that Brian had an ACL insufficiency mm-hmm. with, with no end point so that he had totally unstable. So the record says he has an ACL insufficiency with no end point, but he may do okay. Okay. And for those who don't know, well, what do you mean by no end point? Well, that he's, and, and I'm not an orthopedic surgeon, right. but, but no end point meaning that the doctor, I believe the doctor can take the leg and move it around and, okay. and, and, and it's, it's kind of not catching where it's supposed to catch. Right. Okay. So th- that's probably a very bad definition. Yeah, uh, well, it, don't, don't hold me to that. <laughs> um, so it, it is, uh, so, so Chad says, eh, but he may do okay. And, and that's going to come back to haunt Chad at a later date when he has to be cross-examined. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the bottom line is Brian was allowed to play. Uh, they didn't send him back home. So it, it would become a point of contention because Aetna Insurance, which provided coverage to the league, and I, and I mean the league, I mean everybody. It didn't right. matter what team anybody was assigned to. 
everybody was insured by one insurance carrier. The players had a contract, not with the team, but with the league. Right. And um, so they allow Brian to play and he gets assigned to the Detroit drive. And that means Tim Markham. Yep. And, and I, I think those of your listeners who, who know Tim Markham know that Tim was an incredible coach, an incredible man, uh, with a great laugh and great stories, but not always an easy guy to play for. Yep. <laughs> uh, and, and so that, that reputation preceded him and Ryan gets hurt. Uh, he's, uh, he, he, he's, of course they're playing two ways. So he's uh, either a linebacker or a DB in addition to being a running back. And, uh, he's, he's running in the flat. He catches a pass. He, he turns and he gets hit and his knee blow, gets blown out. And it's the same knee that he had the ACL insufficiency. Well, Brian doesn't tell anybody. He thinks that if he tells anybody, Markham's going to cut him. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't tell anybody. And he waits a couple of days. And then on the very last day of camp, he gets cut. And that's when Brian goes to Phil Graham, the trainer, and says, I got hurt. So this becomes the basis, and I skipped over some of the contract issues, which I'll come back to. Sure. But this this becomes the basis for what will become an accident and notice dispute under workers' compensation law. That Aetna Insurance and their attorneys are claiming that Brian didn't get hurt playing football He gave late notice of the injury. They're also disputing that his injuries are causally related to the accident because he had a pre-existing condition. So they're disputing everything under the sun. So getting back to the the contract issue, Mm -hmm. in Illinois, there are three ways to show jurisdiction. The first is if an injury occurs in Illinois. And clearly, we don't have that. Berge gets hurt in Indiana. Mm -hmm. The second way to show jurisdiction in Illinois is that Illinois is the principal place of employment. Right. And I made that argument, even though I didn't expect to win that argument. And the third way to show jurisdiction is if the contract of employment is made in Illinois. So how do I get principal place of employment? How do I get contract in Illinois? Two big problems. So I already alluded to the notion that you could have a contract, a verbal contract, that is accepted by performance. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the arguments. I was making every argument I could under the sun. So I argued that Brian getting on the plane and flying to Chicago was his acceptance of a, of an offer. But, but the better argument was where was the contract made? So how do we get a contract in Illinois? Well, Jim Foster was not in Rensselaer for the entire week of camp. And I can't remember if it was one week or two weeks, but I, I think one week. And the guys are handed a contract in Rensselaer. The guys are told to sign the contract and to turn it in. And on one of the days, Jim is there in Rensselaer, and he's signing contracts in Rensselaer, and the players are getting those contracts back. Right. And Brian was one of them. So Brian has a contract that he has signed in Indiana. He has a contract that Jim has signed in Indiana. How the heck do we get a contract in Illinois, at least a written contract? Right. Well, with, with well, being, does, people need to remember too that at the time the head office it, even it was in Des Plaines, Illinois. So that's just just give it a little bit of context for our listeners. So yes, and 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 it was so important for the claim to be in Illinois, not because I'm licensed in Illinois and not Indiana, mm-hmm. but because Indiana benefits for the injured worker were absolutely horrible back then, and they're mm-hmm. still not very good. 
whereas Illinois is dramatically better for the injured worker. Right. Not to the point that somebody who gets big money says, gee, I'm glad I got hurt. Uh, that's a common misconception in workers' compensation. Uh, you'd always rather be healthy. But but the benefit difference in Illinois and Indiana are dramatically different. So it was very important, not only for Brian, but for all the players, uh, to be able to, to have their benefits go through a state that, quite frankly, was among the best in the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you think in terms of, at least in America, you know what's a blue state, what's a red state, well, the blue states tend to be a little more favorable to the to to labor rather than management. Right. So, so it was important for us to try to show that we had Illinois jurisdiction. Um, so, in preparation for trial, I issued a subpoena for the personnel records of the players. I wanted to see room and board receipts for for a lot of different reasons. I wanted to see the contracts. Um, and Mark Higley put a box together, and I came over to Bill Nairo's office, and I picked up the box. Uh, it was probably more than one box. I don't remember. <laughs> but, but the one thing that I do remember, and I held it in my hip pocket until I cross-examined Jim Foster, was that there was a second contract. A second contract signed by Brian Berge and signed by Jim Foster. But the second contract, unbeknownst to, to Jim, to Aetna Insurance, to anybody other than me, was that Jim had signed that second contract in Des Plaines, Illinois. Ah, okay. And he had signed that contract about a week later, a week after uh, Brian signed the contract. So generally speaking, the formation of a contract, when does a contract become a contract? When the last act necessary to make the contract is done. That's when it becomes binding. So what's the last act? Generally, the second signature. Yep. It's, and it's the same with any any agreement. It's like yes. an agreement. Yeah, it, the last signature, right then and there, that is when it, it that's when it starts taking place. Right, and and you'll see in, in contracts and in, in other sports, and eventually they did this in arena football as well. Uh, the contract has to be approved by the league office, and and I can't recall if that was in the 1988 contract or not. But if it was, I was that would only help me because that would have been Displains, Illinois. Right. So. So we have a jurisdiction dispute. We have an employee-employer relationship dispute with Arena Football claiming that Brian was not an employee. Their argument was that he was auditioning for a job, which I found to be really disingenuous. Uh, I, I was really insulted by that argument because by by that thinking, you know, they, they could have had 50 guys go down in training camp and mm-hmm. then say, see, ya, you're, you're out of luck, you're SOL. Um, and, and that's one thing, and I think one of the reasons that really drew me to wanting to help these guys, they, they were all, the great majority of them then, and, and I'm sure throughout arena football's history, were hoping arena football would be a stepping stone. Obviously, not everybody was going to go on to be uh, uh, you know, an Iowa barnstormer quarterback that makes yeah. it to the, to the Rams, yeah. but, but most of the guys are hoping that they're on their way up. You have a handful of guys like Cliff Branch that were on their way down in 1988. But the guys were willing. Uh, Arena football never had to worry about finding labor. They were never going to have to worry about finding football players. Mm-hmm. And every uh, every indoor league that has followed has never had a problem finding football players. So you take these young athletes who really know very little about the world in which they live 
They don't understand contracts. They don't understand workers' compensation. They don't know, and they think they're invincible. They have the last thing on their mind is what will happen if I get hurt. Mm. Uh, and yeah, so, so Arena never had difficulty finding players, and the not everybody was going to be Billy Stone and leave. Right. And so you had all these guys that were willing to play for a very small amount of money. And and I can't remember if it was three hundred and fifty bucks a week. That might have been only if you won. Uh, I, I remember there being an, some incentive if you if you won. But I think there was a win bonus. I think it was. I think back then I think bucks. it was fifty bucks or one hundred and fifty bucks, something like that. Yeah, it, it was something very modest. And uh, so e- either way, win or lose, the guys weren't making a lot of money. Uh, and you had guys that were perhaps coming from construction jobs where they were making good money and then going to play football for very low money. Yeah. And then lo and behold, they're not able to go back to that construction job because they got hurt playing arena football. Right. So so I uh, that really had a lot to do with how I got involved. But in any event, uh, the notion that these players were auditioning for a job, I found that to be uh, an unkind argument. Now, who uh, used that term, by the way, Ray? Was it the lawyers yeah, or, or was it, it Foster? It was, it, was, it was Aetna's attorney. It wasn't okay. Jim. Okay. No, it, was, it wasn't Jim. It was Aetna's attorney. Um, you know, he, he likened it to a beauty pageant or, or to, you know, the, the, the ca- casting for a TV show. Uh, and, and I was really insulted by that. Um, I had a very worthy opponent. He was a very senior attorney. I was a kid back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is, this is what, 30, 34 years ago or so, 33 yeah. years ago. So, uh, the, my opponent was, uh, was, was probably in his late sixties, early seventies. He was a very seasoned attorney, mm-hmm. uh, old school attorney, very blustery, uh, loud, mm-hmm. um, so it was it was an interesting uh, he and I had an interesting relationship. <laughs> Do you so, think that's why they use the term tryout now compared to because you're saying they're you, you know the same almost sounds similar to the term that you just used that the attorney used because you know some of these guys will go say try out for the CFL or they'll try out for one of the you know one of the other indoor leagues or, or whatever but or for the NFL they're they're trying out there's no guaranteed contract right that's uh, that's a good point I, I had not thought of that. Uh, I like to think that I'm not the reason, uh, <laughs> but uh, that's an excellent point that I had not given any thought to. Um, so, so we had the jurisdiction dispute, and we had the employer-employer relationship dispute because mm-hmm. if you're not an employee, you're not entitled to workers' comp. Then we had the accident dispute mm-hmm. because Brian didn't report it till a week later. We had a causation dispute based on the pre-existing condition mm-hmm. and the fact that Chad said that he had an ACL insufficiency before he played. Um, we had a, a wage dispute because benefits are based on earnings. Mm-hmm. And in Rensselaer, they were only getting a per diem. They weren't even getting the 350 a week. So as far as my opponent was concerned, Brian should have been entitled to maybe 25 bucks a week. Or something, something really, really small, um, and that's if I got over the hurdles of all the other issues. Yeah. So uh, then we had the dispute on his medical bills, a dispute on his lost time benefits. Everything under the sun was disputed except his birthday and his his sex. Yeah, and his, his name, gen- his gender, and his, name. And his yeah, yeah. And, and that was it. So, um, so it it was very contentious. And I called uh, four four witnesses in addition to Brian 
Uh, I demanded Prodromos testify, so uh, we took his deposition, and that was um, it, it was very volatile uh, because in Chad's mind, he was being, and obviously I'm speaking for him, but in his mind, he's being accused of letting somebody play who shouldn't have played. Right. Um, and in my mind, that's fine. Then my argument changes. Then the Arena Football League didn't follow your recommendation. Isn't that correct? And and Chad had some problems with that question because either way, whether he whether they failed him in the physical or didn't fail him in the physical, mm. he was allowed to play. Yeah. So I I didn't I really didn't care what the rationale was from the league medical director as to what the pre-existing condition was, what the ACL insufficiency was. The fact is they allowed him to play. All right. Why did they allow him to play? I believe they had a numbers problem. Billy Stone wasn't the only guy that left. Okay. And so I, I don't remember how many guys left. I, I did go, I was out in Rensselaer. Uh, Mike McCurry, who was uh, one of the original Chicago bruisers, he and I drove out to Rensselaer. And so he and I were at camp when the guys were presented with contracts. And uh, Reggie Smith and Carl Akins showed me their contracts uh, before they signed, and I explained what was going on to them. Uh, but the guys were under a lot of pressure to sign those contracts and hand them in. Uh, they, they were not encouraged to take the time to read them or to have an attorney review them. Mm. And, and the league was obviously going on this barnstorming tour. They needed players to play this game. And so I think that's why Brian was, quote, allowed to play, close quote. Right. And I think in retrospect, he should have failed that, that physical. Uh, if, he had, if, he, if he had an ACL deficient knee, he shouldn't have been playing professional football. So in any event, that, that's, that makes Chad look bad. It makes Chad look bad. And in all fairness to Chad, Chad said, you got a bad knee. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't Chad's decision as to whether the league allowed him to play or not. Chad did his job. But the league put him in a tough position that they didn't have to do. So uh, Now, approximately from, from the time that Chad got hurt, how right. long how long was it until you until you and the league met in court? Uh, approximately six months. Uh, six the, months? The, yeah, it was about six months before the trial started. Uh, I did not know Brian at the time. I didn't know him in Rensselaer. Um, I don't recall who referred him to me. It, it may have been Brent. But there were so many guys in camp that knew me and that I had already represented. It, it didn't take long for my name to get around. Right. Um, so, so Brian came to me and we began our investigation. Um, and there were several things that, that I needed to do to try to, to win the claim. Right. Uh, and obviously the jurisdiction issue that all revolved around my ability to cross examine Jim Foster mm -hmm. and, and it hurt Jim's credibility for, for him to get up on the witness stand and, and talk about the contract that he signed in Rensselaer and that contract, by the way, was a photocopy when I had an original contract that he signed in Illinois. And he didn't know I had it. My opponent didn't know I had it. And then I present it during cross-examination. And that hurts Jim's credibility. Right. And it hurts his credibility on that and whatever else he's testifying to. Um, Jim just didn't realize that he had signed more than one contract. He's got a stack of contracts. He's signing them one after the other. Right. So he, he just didn't know. And this was there was no plan or design by Arena Football to, to do this to Brian. 
um, it, it just happened. So, so I have to cross-examine Jim on, on, on the contract issue. Uh, and, and that was really the, the beginning of, I don't want to say the beginning of the end. It, it made for a very difficult relationship with the arena football hierarchy thereafter. Okay. Uh, I had been on pretty good terms with Jim, uh, good terms with Mark Higley and Jeremiah Enright and the other people in the front, Mac Lewis. Uh, I was friendly with Ray Yock, who was the coach of the Bruisers yeah. and Markham. So, uh, it, it got difficult there, but, but, but before I cross-examined him, Jim and I went to, uh, to Wrigley Field to a Cub game and talked about how the league might evolve to the point that we do have a players union. So, I mean, these were issues that were contemplated right. in the late 80s. Um, and, and Jim and I were on, on real good terms there. And uh, I went to, uh, to the first Europe tour, Europe tour, European tour in 1989 mm-hmm. with the league. Uh, which was interesting for a lot of issues. Um, so, so we had Jim testify to that issue. Mark Higley testified with regard to uh, a lot of the business issues, wages, uh, benefits, uh, insurance issues. I had Ben Bennett testify. Uh, ben lived in Chicago at the time. Um, and as I, I suspect you know, Ben has an incredible gift for gab, and uh, which could occasionally get him into trouble. Uh, so I had Bennett testify as to the field conditions, uh, as I was trying to demonstrate that the field conditions contributed to the injury. I had Phil Graham testify uh, as to the notice of the injury, about how, how and when Brian came to him to report the injury. Right. And, and I kind of got away with Ben and Phil testifying about Tim Markham, about what Tim was like. Uh, as, as a way to support the connotation that um, that Brian would be afraid to report the injury for fear that he would get cut. Right. Um, so so they testified, and then Pedromos testified, and, and Brian, of course. So uh, the trial started six months after the injury, approximately. During the six months, none of the medical bills are getting paid by Aetna. Uh, there's no TTD, temporary total disability, being paid to the injured worker. Right. Fortunately, Brian had group insurance through his family. So he had a source for payment of medical bills. For most people uh, who were his age in that league, they had no, the league didn't provide group insurance. The league didn't provide health insurance. And they had no health insurance at home. So for, for the, the gentleman who got hurt in 88 during the two weeks when there was no insurance, he had nobody to, to, yeah. to pay anything. So so Brian was fortunate in that regard. He had a family that he could live with. He had group insurance. So he did not become destitute. Uh, and that is indeed what happens to a lot of people mm-hmm. when they have uh, uh, claims that are denied. This is, you know, most people in, in the workers' comp system are, are living check to check. And uh, when that check doesn't come, they're in trouble. Right. So, uh, so we went to trial about six months later. Trial took a long time because there were uh, because of the number of witnesses, uh, and four years later we settled the case, but not before uh, the case went up on appeal three times. Uh, I won at the arbitration level on right. every on every issue, including the wage issue, um, and it got appealed to the commission. Then it got appealed to the circuit court, and we settled while the case was in the appellate court. But by that time. Brian had completed his care and had moved on, and mm-hmm. uh, so many other things had happened in the league 
since the initiation of that trial. The Arena Football Hall of Fame has returned, and we want you to become a part of the family. Introducing the Arena Football Hall of Fame Patreon. Whether an all-star or a Hall of Famer, our reasonably priced tiers each have their own exclusive perks. Early access to the AFL Rewind podcast, honorary selection committee member, and much more. Help us build a Hall of Fame we'll all be proud of. Head to patreon.com slash Fame to join. Looking back at it, do you think that 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 lawsuit was a catalyst for major changes in the arena football league? Because how was it 89 versus 90 when it came to contracts that were signed with players, the guys that you represented? Did it change in a drastic way or did it, in your opinion, did it take up until the end of the lawsuit itself or the major changes were only made? Well, the biggest change was a change in the law in Illinois. Mm -hmm. Uh, as to the origination of, of the contract. The, the law said that you had to have a contract of hire in Illinois, and then there was some judicial activism where the court said that not only do you need a contract of hire in Illinois, but you have to, quote, maintain significant contacts, close quote, right. with the state of Illinois. So we, we had a, a young man from the Albany Firebirds, uh, Terrence Hall, whose only contact to the state of Illinois was the fact that the league had an office in Illinois. Right. That was it. I mean, the, there was no longer a team in Chicago. Nobody was getting hurt in Rosemont. And and we brought that case through Illinois. Uh, we won and we lost on appeal when the law changed. And that uh, that was basically, or it had a lot to do with, with my tenure coming to an end as far as representing the players for the injuries because right. we didn't have a team in Chicago and I couldn't get the claims through Illinois anymore. Uh, there were some changes in the contract. Uh, I had instructed some players to, to write a, uh, uh, an amendment to the contract that their signature would be null and void unless the league signed the contract in Illinois. Mm -hmm. Uh, there were a variety of things that we did to try to change that. I, I, if I remember correctly, the following year, the league was sending players out to their home cities, um, for a few days before coming to Chicago for a camp, uh, and they were going to have the players sign those contracts in those home cities. Whether that was by plan or design, I can't say. All right. uh, I, I can't say that was a reaction. My guess is that it wasn't uh, because the issue was still so unsettled. Uh, I mean, it took us four years to litigate the claim. Mm -hmm. So I can't say that what they did the following year had anything to do with what we were doing. Um, I'm sure they were astute enough to know that their premiums might be less in one state than another, mm -hmm. um, and that they might try to manipulate that. I, as a business owner, I would certainly expect that and, and they would be right to do so. Um, I don't know if that's what they did. I, it, it, it would surprise me if there was that much thought put into it. When people, if people were to look at the history of the players union in the, in the arena football league, do you feel that your name should be a part of that? Considering you you were you, you were a union because you mentioned before a, a possible work stoppage. Uh, you're looking at the contracts, writing addendums. You know, it's well. You, you look like a James Gidry now, who who ended up being the head <laughs> head of the PU right before you know the league folded. Right. Well, you well, know, you know, he, he was the he was the catalyst for yeah, the yeah. for it. 
back in 99. Yeah, Guidry, Soto, those guys, none of them, uh, my name probably wouldn't even ring a bell to them. But but if you asked, uh, and I don't want this to come off as ego-driven, but, you know, if if you asked George LaFrance, if you asked Billy Stone, Dwayne Mm -hmm. Dixon, some of the some of the very big names from the early years of arena football, I think they would tell you yes. Um, and, and, and Gino Nudo might even endorse that as well. Um, so I, I was, I was around a lot back then. Uh, and because there were no cell phones, because there was no internet, um, I had to be out and about. Um, so I would travel to games and, and, and get to know players. And, uh, there was always somebody there to make that introduction, but, uh, yeah, we, we, we had our share of issues in the first several years. And uh, back in, uh, I think it was 89, uh, we, you know, there was great potential for a work stoppage because uh, paychecks, I can't remember if the paychecks were bouncing or if they didn't go out. Right. Um, and and it, uh, Reggie Smith came to me and, and said, you know, I can't play if I'm not getting paid. And... Uh, and, and so there was, there there was a threat of a work stoppage. Um, I remember talking to Gino Nudo about it at the time. Um, this is by, I, before there was a Rattlers team before Gino was out in Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and there were some there were some difficult times. There were some threats uh, back and forth. Um, and at one back in 1990, um, the Arena Football League filed a complaint against me. Uh, with the attorney registration and disciplinary committee. Okay. Um, and, and I had done nothing wrong, but from, from there and, and, and was adjudicated as such that I had done nothing wrong. Um, in a best case scenario, what I should have done is label an envelope as advertising material because I sent a letter out to the players to notify them about some of these labor issues that we were having. And we didn't have, there wasn't one place a player could go to for this information. Right. And was this, and, is this the infamous letter that you, you, you showed me where you say to quote, arena football is a dangerous game? It is. Yeah. Uh, it is the letter and it was a dangerous game and, and still is. But, but, but certainly, at least to me, more dangerous back then because the guys were going both ways. Yeah. You know, they're, they're, they spent more time on the field and, and back then... We had some some fields that had that didn't stretch smooth. <laughs> oh, I remember seeing some of the pictures from Pittsburgh in their first season. How the, oh yeah, how like, the turf turf did this right? It was like there were speed bumps. Yeah, um, and and I can I, the, I remember and the turf turf came up during the arena bowl if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's and, TV. That's national television. <laughs> yeah, that that didn't that didn't make us look good. It's funny I say us. I mean, it, you know, I I, I kind of always felt like I, I wanted the league to succeed. I didn't want to hurt them. Right. I love the game and the guys love the game. And so I, I, I wanted to help them fix these issues. Right. Well, it's like anybody yeah. in the, in the, in the unions in the past, whoever was the, you know, the head of the, of the unions, they weren't there to hurt the league either. They were doing yeah. like you were right. They, they wanted to help and make sure that the players were got what they deserved make sure for the injuries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's exactly what you were doing. Well, and that's, and, and I spoke before the, the arena football management council prior to an arena bowl mm-hmm. in Detroit. I can't remember what year, but uh, essentially saying, you know, let me help you. And, and I wasn't looking for business. 
I wasn't going to make money doing that. I was making mm-hmm. money on contingency fees representing the players. I just wanted to help them avoid some of the problems that they were running into because it would be good for them and it would be good for the players. It would right. be good for everybody, a win-win. And, you know, some of the, you know, Gary Vito was a little dismissive and uh, most of the guys were receptive, but but uh, the guys from Detroit weren't so weren't so eager. Um, the, the you know I appreciate what you say about about my name being out there from from the beginning, but we we ju- the players didn't have one place where they could go. There wasn't one phone number that they right. could call for help. Uh, none of them knew would would have no knowledge about uh, you know going to a labor board or or you know seeking out any type of governmental assistance. And and my phone number was out there, so guys started calling me, and we started trying to address these issues. But I was not a labor attorney. I wasn't, right. uh, you know, I, I wasn't going to be able to to negotiate a collective bargaining agreement. That wasn't my forte. Uh, but but my work representing the guys for injuries kind of led down that road and led down the road of the NFLPA. Um, and you know, I had a, a cup of coffee doing that and. And and that kind of worked into some other sports where I got to to live vicariously through some yeah. of my clients and have some fun. What um why do you think from when you le- left we'll say left left and uh, left the Arena Football League and, and helping the players because you said there was no team in Chicago? Why do you think it took so long between? Why did it t- have to take another major injury to Gidry in order to start the idea of the players' union again? I mean, we're talking almost we're talking ten years basically. Uh, give or take, give or take. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know the answer. Uh, I, I do know this. Players want to play. Mm-hmm. Players want those opportunities. And the issues that you and I have been talking about today are never in the forefront of the minds of the football player. Right. They're, you know, it, it's, it's something that's handled after the fact and only when it has to be handled. Um, and, and that's unfortunate because that kind of thinking got a lot of people hurt. Um, yeah, I, I'm anybody who, who walked away unscathed, I'm thrilled for them. Um, yeah, I have a, an arena football friend who's got some, some CTE issues, uh, you know, some traumatic encephalopathy issues. Um, I was speaking to somebody who's, I won't say his name, but somebody last night who, who's doing poorly. Um, you know, and a lot of the guys are limping now that's, you know, that's not unusual for football. For, for football players to have bad knees and bad hips, but uh, but it's certainly unusual for a football player to break his neck going headfirst into a hockey board. Yeah, uh, and, and we had that uh, back in '88. So it, it's there were a lot of things that were unique to the game that made the game dangerous for the players, and the players perhaps because the game was still in its infancy, uh, at least as a reason, not necessarily the reason, the players did not appreciate the danger that they were in. Right. They didn't appreciate the danger and they didn't appreciate what it would do to them later in life. And, and people need to remember too, that the game did change. I mean, as you said at the beginning, you, the, the boards were brought in by what were, were, there were a real sideline, so to speak with the boards now, but the boards, the padding on the boards had changed over years. It it wasn't the full six, six inches that it currently is now. I mean, I remember seeing it, when we then when there was a team in Toronto, which they had, you know, they had gotten their uh, their padding from New York City to Hartford 
to Toronto, I remember how I remember how thin it was. It wasn't the full six inches like it currently is now. So all those things make a difference. Even I remember a game in uh, Ottawa, Canada, where they played a a regular season exhibition game. Sorry, regular season game was an exhibition between the New Jersey Red Dogs and the Florida Bobcats. The way that they had it set up at the arena, there wasn't there weren't boards there were open end zones. And I remember a player going directly into, because at the arena, the Corral Center there in Ottawa, the seats folded up and he went directly into the seats. There was no padding. <laughs> and it makes you think, as you said, people, and mind you, they were getting paid a lot more then than they were back in the early 80s. Right. Well, and it was a very different game in 1987 mm-hmm. uh, when the, the sidelines were so far far removed from the field mm-hmm. uh in in chicago it was probably a good 20 30 feet on yeah. either side i can't recall exactly but but there was quite a bit of space and and obviously it's an entirely different game uh under those circumstances uh and, and i will admit i i think it's a better game with the boards mm-hmm. but but i say that as a fan not as an attorney representing the players right right and uh, so obviously there's <sighs> But some of the problems we had in the early years with with the fields, not I mean, some of those fields, I, I believe uh, one of the fields might have been an indoor soccer field, and it had been painted. And uh, that was the one I think that was used for the showcase game in in Chicago. Oh, in Rockford, yeah, yeah. Um, Rockford, so yeah. it's I mean, we had. I, I remember there being problems in Europe with with the field and. I, I walked around the perimeter of the field with Ray Yawk, uh, and and Ray was such a nice guy and really cared about the guys, and 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 really tried to to make it safer. I remember on that trip for the guys, um, there were a lot of good people in that front office. I, uh, you know, it's I, I I wish they were still around. I wish the AFL was still here. Uh, I think they had a great product, but it's awfully hard to. It's awfully hard economically when you're relying on putting butts in seats to make it when you only have eight or nine chances a year to put butts in seats. Mm -hmm. That's true. Now, you mentioned before, and you just happened to bring it up now, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Europe because you said there are some interesting issues there also besides the field because people – the field itself really didn't change for the European games at all. If you go back and you look at the game that is currently on YouTube, it's the the last ever exhibition game in Paris – the sidelines are still as large as they were back then for the very first game in Paris and in, in Los and uh, in London. They were still that far away. Mm-hmm. What I can only imagine the turf there. You were talking about turf before, but what were some of the issues yourself? Because you were there, you were representing you know the players while you were there. I would imagine in for the exhibition games in in London. What were the player uh, the issues that you came across there? Well, there was there was a problem in London in one of the end zones. Um, there was some some barricades that were at the end of the end zone that were creating hazards, mm-hmm. uh, and these were you know, the steel barricades that you might see in front of a first row around yes. a boxing ring or wrestling yeah. ring. So there were there were issues with the barricades. Uh, there were some issues with, uh, if I remember correctly, the doors on the uh, for the benches. Okay. Which which was not an unusual thing that, that I, I seem to recall having that problem in Cincinnati in '89 as well. Um, the um, actually for the London game in '89, uh, I I assisted with the public address 
and with the radio broadcast uh, for both the Paris and London games. Oh, that's cool. Which was uh, which was interesting. Uh, but I was uh, I well when there would be a play a play from scrimmage if 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 uh, Will McClay got tackled on the twenty yard line you know I would say to to the PA guy uh, ball at the twenty third down and six or what and but I had such a poor angle <laughs> that I I was just guessing and I had never seen. Uh, seen these games on video and then recently happened to see the London game, uh, on YouTube. And I yep. can see myself on the sidelines. Oh, really? Doing this. Yeah. I was that's, absolutely stunned. That's cool. Uh, and, uh, and fortunately there were no close-ups, um, because I, I, I know the camera adds about 130 pounds, but the, uh, I clearly, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, uh, when I was making those comments and the PA announcer is telling the crowd, whatever I say, uh, so, <laughs> you know, record keeping back then, certainly for the, uh, the exhibition games wasn't so great, but record keeping in the early years of arena football wasn't so great either. Uh, I can remember for a long time, a lot of people thought Dwayne Dixon was the, the Iron Man in 87 and certainly a, a worthy candidate and, and Dwayne got it in 88, but it was Bill Stone in 87. And, uh, I remember calling a radio station, uh, WGN to correct them. Uh, but that's, and I called the arena football office. They had it wrong. So, um, and I was there when Bill got the award in Pittsburgh. So we didn't have the, the issues that we had on the Europe trip weren't so much safety issues as much as insurance issues. Right. Um, and, and there were, uh, there was a meeting prior to the European trip where they had the Aetna adjuster come to the meeting to explain to the guys what would happen if they got hurt in Europe. And and this was done because of all the legwork that I had done prior to the European trip, because I right. wanted to make sure that nobody got hurt in Paris and then got screwed. Right. Uh, and where was jurisdiction going to be if somebody got hurt in Paris or London? And And so we worked this out in advance. And we had an agreement that there would be Illinois jurisdiction and what the wages were going to be and what the wages would be based on. So we, we tried to be proactive to, pro, to, to prevent a Berkey type of situation happening if anybody got hurt in Europe. But when there was this meeting, I can't remember what hotel it was near the airport in Chicago, uh, I came to the meeting at the request of some of the players, and I was asked very kindly by Arena Football to not be in the meeting. Uh, and... Uh, and some of the players, uh, you know, the players want to go to the Europe, to Europe. They're not going to leave the meeting. So the guys stayed in the meeting. I left the meeting because, like, you know, obviously I'm not going to uh, put up a fight about it. But All right. Uh, and then uh, I can remember Reggie Smith and Carl Aikens coming to me after the meeting to review the contract. But the guys had been pressured to sign those contracts in that meeting after meeting with the uh, the insurance adjuster from Aetna. And uh, uh and arena football didn't want me in that meeting. And I thought that was petty, um, and, and not in the spirit of what they were trying to accomplish. And, uh, and, and they were really leveraging the players much as they had in 1989 in Rensselaer when they really needed players to, to play, to go barnstorming. And, um, and here they were holding out this carrot to the players that, Hey, you're going to Paris, you're going to London, but, I want to make sure they're taken care of if they get hurt. And we did have guys who got hurt 
in Europe, despite the fact that those games were really not very good games. They were horrible. (laughs) (laughs) They were horrible. The Chicago Bruisers weren't really the Chicago Bruisers. No, no. A a team of guys just thrown together. Um, But, uh, I mean, heck, I'm on the field holding for Gary Gussman as he's practicing field goals. Um, So it was, the games were were not well played. Uh, The guys were, you know, they were having their fun in Europe. And uh, so the game was secondary. So, you know, as far as putting the games on for potential investors, you know, I don't think the league put its best foot forward in that regard. But yeah, and I think at the time, I think, I think Jim and and Jerry Kerr's where they were, thinking of the idea of possibly starting that, you know, the European league. Yep. Uh, And that's, I mean, but they always, you know, they drew well in Paris. I mean, that's one of the constants in the, you know, in these seven years that they did them. The the guys hated the food in Paris. (laughs) (laughs) We we, we were eating in the arena. We We would walk from the hotel to the arena and everybody would eat together. And the guys just hated the food. Um, I'll tell you one, one observation about eating with the players at that time. Mm -hmm. I was really stunned by how segregated they were. Uh, all the Caucasian players ate together and all the African American players ate together. And I didn't, I had given it no thought until I went over there. I had never given it any thought. And I was really surprised to see that segregation. And I, I can't say that it was like that all the time. It was really just a snapshot in time for me because I didn't right. typically eat with the teams. But but that's what I saw in Paris, and I was surprised by that. Um, looking back at, at what you did and how you helped the players, do you wish that you had stayed on with them and rather you know, and, and, and possibly been able to, you know, get a labor lawyer in there and possibly start a, a players association, before, you know, rather than having to wait for them to wait another 10 years and another major injury? Uh, I, I would lie. I would be lying if I said no. Um, there, there, are, there are times that I've thought of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have chosen to do it. Uh, I, I made, just because there wasn't a team in Chicago didn't mean that I had to stop because right. in 89, you know, I, I went to Cincinnati. I, I went to Detroit. I went to Atlanta. I, unfortunately, I didn't go to the game in Sacramento, which was the game to be at yeah. um, because of a little confrontation. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, the uh, and I'm still looking for film of that. Um, I, I, I met my wife in 1993, and I knew that I was going to be having some lifestyle changes, uh, knew that I would want to start a family, and knew that to continue to do what I was doing would be difficult to do without being away from home on weekends. And I didn't want to be away from home on weekends. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted a family. And so, uh, little did I know at the time that, that cell phones would become so prevalent and the internet Mm -hmm. would become so prevalent. And, uh, if, if technology existed back in 87 and 88, the way it did now, uh, yeah, I think my my career path would have been very different because I would have had no difficulty maintaining contact with everybody, uh, and and Facebook has allowed me to reestablish contact with so many guys that I represented over the years, um, and it's easy to find each other now. So yeah. we didn't have that back then. Uh, guys lived the the players lived very transient lifestyles, so it was very very hard to keep track of somebody once they left town. Very hard. Um, you look at your, your career in the, in the, 
in the in the AFL. Oh, we'll call it a career in the AFL. <laughs> um, and, and you're talking about all the and you've you've told us about all the good that you did in, in order to help the players. If you were to be able to to say out of all the players that you were represented, what team was the best and what team was just absolutely the worst? Well, as far as quality of play, uh, well, I mean, as far as treating their players right. Oh, yeah. Well, the uh, look, the guys in Detroit had had it pretty good. Um, you know, after the game, I, there was a there was a, a bar inside Joe Lewis Arena that was private. Okay. And after every game in Joe Lewis, all the players, both teams, would go to the bar, and there would be food and drink, and uh, you know, there were a lot of stories in Detroit about how the guys were treated. You know, the even though there might have been uh, not a salary cap at the time, but I mean, everybody was supposed to be making the same money, mm-hmm. but there were plenty of stories going around about the so-called personal services contracts that certain mm-hmm. players had with individual teams. So you might have a, a certain former Ohio state quarterback in Detroit who was reportedly selling season tickets for the Detroit Red Wings. And, uh, you know, and there were plenty of stories about what was happening uh, <laughs> uh, to those ticket sales and uh, and whether they wound up at a at a racetrack, so it was you know there were there were those kinds of stories. But uh, what and whether any of that's true, who knows? Uh, what I do know is that uh, there were times where uh, the Detroit Drive might be in a huddle, and you've got the center accusing the quarterback of throwing a pick because he's gambling on the game. Um, so. Yeah. Uh, and 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 that particular center happened to be a pretty volatile guy who would occasionally get thrown out of games for fighting. So uh, so there were those kinds of stories. But the oh, the early days of the AFL. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> but but, but the, you know, Little Caesars and Gary Vito, you know, the, the guys in Detroit liked liked the the hierarchy in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, when when the Texans first had a team in Dallas. Uh, Akins and Bennett were treated really, really well. Uh, and, you know, the, the entire team was housed in one place, and Bennett and Akins were provided with a condo somewhere else. Um, oh boy, okay. So, you know, there were there were lots of side deals in the old days to try to get around certain contractual edicts from the league office. Right. Uh, you had rogue Maverick owners who knew that they needed to win to to be able to to fill seats um it's it's not every team can be like the chicago cubs and 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 fill wrigley field with a losing team for so many years i mean in in most sports you got to win to fill the seats and it was like that for the most part in arena football uh at least in the early days um and when we had the Chicago Rush here in Chicago, they drew very well, and they were a winning team. And um, but we, they were, the Texans were treated pretty well back then. Uh, the Detroit Drive, those guys felt like they were treated pretty well. Uh, the Bruisers, they didn't complain. Uh, I, I can't say that they were treated uh, unfairly or, or mm-hmm. badly. Um, as, as far as a team that didn't get treated great. Uh, the the guys in Pittsburgh weren't always really happy. Um, I, I don't know what the source of those issues were, um, but I, I, I used to hear some complaints from some of the guys in Pittsburgh. Okay. Um, if 
somebody to, to uh, you know say say here the podcast or know your history of the of your of you within the league itself and five years down the line um they asked you uh to explain the arena football league how would you do that for somebody who'd never seen the game before had only heard about the afl how would you explain the league to them from your point of view football on a hockey rink um I, I, and i wouldn't surprise me if, if if jim had ever used that analogy um you know, it's and if I remember correctly, I, th- I think Jim got the idea at an indoor soccer game, or mm-hmm. so it, it's it's certainly a unique game, and I and I did have to explain it to a lot of people back in back in the early days because, yeah. um, it, it, uh, unless you were an arena football aficionado, you either knew most people knew a lot about it or knew nothing about it, right? And and so, uh, I I think the 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 point that I always emphasized. And I'm sure I'm not alone in this. Was just how exciting the game was in person, and much like hockey, in the respect that it's really hard to appreciate how great the game is. Much harder to appreciate it on television than in person. Yeah. That that the in-person experience for arena football is so diametrically opposed to the experience watching it on television. Uh, and you could say that about any sport, but. Uh, I think it's particularly meaningful for arena football and, uh, there's nothing like having a player slam into the boards right in front of you Oh yeah, or or to fly over the boards or, or to catch that ball, uh, or to fall onto the field as I once did. (laughs) Uh, I actually had, you can see that photograph on my Facebook page. Um, so it's, it, it, it was such an exciting game and, and I, I, enjoyed explaining it to people because mm-hmm. I, I wanted it to do well. I wanted people to, enjoy, to, I wanted to share my love for the game. And so it was such an exciting, fast paced game. And I became an arena football fan far more than I was an NFL fan at the time. Right. Right. And some of that had to do because of the personal, uh, the, the, the personal, uh, uh, relationship that I had with so many people in the league. But even though I was gone for so many years, um, when we had the rush back here in Chicago, it was really fun to be able to, you know, when guys would come into town, guys that, you know, I had represented 20 years ago, all of a sudden they're coaching on, on the visiting team coming into Chicago. So, uh, so it was fun to go down on the field. My kids, my kids were treated well by these guys and, and really enjoyed the experience of, of not being part of it, but f- being made to feel like they were a part of it. Yeah. And, and so that, that's been a, a fun thing. And I miss that a lot. Uh, I miss the game and I miss the guys, the, the camaraderie that they shared was, was tremendous. And, uh, I know they miss that once they lose that. We'd like to thank Raymond for coming on this episode. It was very interesting that Raymond took upon himself to be an official union leader or person that the players looked at and tried to make sure that they were, you know, they were treated properly, even though at the time, I mean, he, he was, he was, you know, pre pre union by 10 years. And it just showed that even though his background was not in, uh, you know, negotiations or, or when it came to monetary issues and stuff like that, you know, that, that wasn't his forte, but he still put everything aside to help the players get what he felt that they were that they were due. 
If you happen to miss any of the previous episodes of our little historical podcast here at AFL Rewind, there are a couple of places where you can got caught up. And I can tell you, besides the story from Raymond, uh, this episode, there are a lot of other great stories that you should get caught up on. Uh, you can head over to um, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and our audio version over on YouTube. You can also check uh, you know, a lot of the uh, podcast aggregates that you can, and you should be able to find us on there. Um, want to give out a just a quick bit of information that, uh, speaking of history, um, just this past week when we are taping uh, taping this uh, uh, this interview is where uh, the I guess we could call it the Grail game for most AFL fans. The showcase game has become available over on YouTube. Uh, if you head over to uh, Arena Football TV or do a search through their uh, through their search feature, uh, you should be able to catch the game there. So we hope to have you join us for the next episode in the next couple of weeks. Uh, but until then, make sure that you stay safe, wear a mask, and make sure that you do everything necessary to stay as healthy as possible. So for everybody here at AFL Rewind, I'm Tim Capper. Watch the rebound off the net.